light out everybody what's up everybody welcome back to another episode of the lights out podcast i'm your host josh joined in the studio is my co-host austin how's it going man hey man it's good we got a crazy one today yeah and behind the scenes we got my producer daniel what's up man hey guys how's it going so today we are diving into one of the most disturbing demented sick individuals to ever walk this planet and that is dean coral this is a serial killer that i'm very surprised more people haven't heard of and i think there's several reasons for this one being he did as far as we know most of his killings during the 1970s and during the night i mean the 60s 70s 80s was like serial killer prime time prime time yeah because at the time they didn't even have the term serial killer they were using mass murder still they didn't even coin that term until later on but also during this time period we had the killer clown john wayne gacy as well as the son of sam killer and of course ted bundy was in the 70s and i think the other thing with dean coral is that we never got to talk to him because the way that this case ends is much different than many serial killer cases out there. Oftentimes we get to, you know, interrogate the serial killer and find out more information and things like that. Well, it never got to that point. So a lot of it is told by his accomplices and other individuals that made contact with him. But just forewarning, this one is very graphic, very disturbing and upsetting. So you've been warned. But before we get into today's episode, just want to remind everybody easy free way to support the show is make sure you're subscribed to us here on youtube i know there's a lot of you that just show up for the youtube videos and now we do the premieres on fridays at 12 30 mountain standard time so come join us for that it's always a good time austin's in the chat oh yeah um, sometimes i pop in there as well or i'll just kind of lurk and just kind of monitor from afar yeah um, but those are always a, a good time to kind of get your guys' live reactions to to the episode um, but make sure you're subscribed over there and following us on Spotify. We would really, really appreciate it. doesn't cost you a penny, but it really helps the show out. Also, go check out the merch. We still have quite a few items available. Um, we're working on a new collection, which will be dropping here in the next few months, I believe. But go get merch while it's still there. Because once we're sold out of those items, they are never coming back. And we are moving on. That's milehighmerch.com. But this episode of the podcast is brought to you by HelloFresh and Warby Parker. So I'm not going to waste any more time. Let's just dive into the absolutely horrific case of Dean Coral. One of the nation's most infamous serial killers, Texas Equisearch, announced it'll start searching for more of Dean Coral's victims. Are you guilty of killing anyone at all? Am I guilty of killing anyone at all? No, I'm not. Unless you could say Dean Coral was killing. Defended myself. Coral was called the Candyman, one of two Houston area killers with that name. He wanted to pay me to find people and bring them to him, help him do his thing. Instead of picked to be killed, I was picked to be a handyman. What they found was the bullet ridden body of Dean Carl and a crying 17 year old named Elmer Wayne Henley. Carl had been Henley's friend and mentor, and by killing him, Henley put an end to a two-year torture and serial killing spree. The final body count, though, was 27. Mama, I killed Dean. 
Oh, they wrapped all the bodies in plastic, so some of the bodies were still intact. He's just a little 17-year-old boy that was close to his family, that's all I know. The floor is covered with vinyl sheets to catch their blood. The stereo is turned up to drown out their screams. I was living in a madman's world. It took a bulldozer to find all 27 bodies. There will be more digging for graves, and there will be more grief as additional victims are identified. All these people this much to let them know what's happened to your boy. So we begin our story today by going all the way back to the very beginning of Dean Arnold Quarles' life. He was born on Christmas Eve 1939 in Fort Wayne, Indiana. He was the first child of Arnold Quarrel and Mary Robinson. They later gave birth to Dean's brother, Stanley. During their childhood years, they grew up in an aggressive home where their parents were constantly fighting. His father later admitted that he didn't even like children. It's a great thing for a parent to say. And he directed his anger toward Dean and his younger brother, Stanley. Even after the smallest infraction, he would beat them as punishment. So Mary became extremely protective over her sons. Mary and Arnold did eventually divorce in 1942, and after this they sold the family home. Arnold was drafted into the Air Force at the end of World War II and was stationed in Tennessee. Mary had gained custody of her two sons, but she took them to live in Memphis so they could be close to their father. Over the next few years, Mary and Arnold tried to reconcile their failed marriage, but they rarely ever got along. As for Dean, he was a shy and anxious child, and he rarely socialized with other children. When he was seven years old, he suffered from an undiagnosed case of rheumatic fever. So that's an inflammatory disease that can develop when strep throat or scarlet fever isn't treated properly. That's usually when you you get it when you're young. Um, It can cause permanent damage to the heart, including damaged heart valves and heart failure. Many of the symptoms seem like an intense fever, but sometimes people can suffer from severe chest pain, rashes, uncontrollable jerking movements, unusual behavior like bursting out crying or laughing at inappropriate times. And uh, the doctors didn't discover this until he suffered for four years after the fact. And then they also found out he had a heart condition, which was from this fever. That's crazy. So because he had rheumatic fever, he developed a heart condition at an early age. Is it just like untreated fever? Yeah, when it goes untreated. Oh. Yep. So then he struggled with this in his childhood and he couldn't even participate in PE class at school. So this is basically like abuse by the parents. You think? Yeah, neglect. Yeah. Neglect. So they're not not treating their child and therefore their child develops a long-term illness as a result. Yeah. God. Around the same time, his parents remarried in 1950 and they moved to Pasadena, California. But this didn't last very long. His parents couldn't get along no matter how hard they tried. So for the second and final time, Mary and Arnold divorced only three years after their second marriage in 1953. Mary retained custody of her sons, but supposedly the divorce was amicable, so the boys were still able to maintain contact with their father. They moved to a small town named Vidor, Texas where Mary met a traveling clock salesman named Jake West. They married soon after, and in 1955, Dean's half-sister Joyce was born. Here in Vidor, Dean's mother and stepfather decided to open up a small candy company, 
At first, they started operating out of their garage. And this is where Dean and his younger brother got their first jobs operating the candy machines. They also packaged pralines, divinity, and pecan candies. If Dean wasn't at school, he was most likely working for his parents' candy company. Since he barely had free time and struggled with socializing, he had no friends. And this carried on into his teenage years. While at Vidor High School, his only interest was the trombone and the brass band that he played in. Other than that, the teachers thought he was well-behaved and got acceptable grades. After his graduation in 1958, his family moved to the Heights neighborhood in Houston, Texas. His mother and stepfather shifted their candy operations into a new shop they called Pecan Prince. Dean moved to his grandparents' house in Indiana in 1960 and stayed with them for about two years. Meanwhile, he even grew close to an unnamed local girl, which was rare, but the relationship didn't last long and he ended up moving back home to Houston to help with his parents' candy business in 1962. After living with them briefly, he ended up renting an apartment right above the candy shop. His stepfather once took his mother aside and told her that Dean might be gay. She immediately got offended and insisted that he wasn't. Plus, she was deeply homophobic. She even openly said that gay people were, quote-unquote, disgusting, and she thought of her son as loyal, obedient, helpful, loving, and just a good, normal boy. Knowing that his mother had vocal opinions on sexuality, Dean never talked about his sexuality with his parents ever. Within a year, his mother divorced Jake West and she promoted Dean to the vice president of operations position of the candy company. Soon after taking this position, a teenage male employee complained to Dean's mother about the sexual advances Dean had made toward him. But instead of addressing the issue, Mary immediately fired the employee and ignored the problem. After sweeping the problem under the rug, Dean was drafted into the U.S. Army on August 10, 1964. At the time, U.S. operations in Vietnam were expanding, and Dean was assigned to Fort Polk, Louisiana for basic training. He was then reassigned to Fort Benning, Georgia, and finally stationed in Fort Hood, Texas, as a radio repairman. During his brief time in the U.S. Army, he reportedly hated military service with a passion, and within a year, he applied for hardship discharge, claiming he needed to get back to his family's candy shop business. Surprisingly, his request was granted, and he was given an honorable military discharge on June 11, 1965, after only 10 months of service. When he returned to Houston and resumed his position as vice president of the candy business, which was now called the Coral Candy Company, and over the years, the business had grown. In 1965, the family shop moved right across the street from an elementary school where kids would stop by every day. Dean was often spotted outside luring kids to the store and giving them free candy, which these actions would later get him the nickname, The Candy Man. But behind his innocent smile, dark and violent thoughts were brewing. And as he passed out candy, he specifically tried to get the attention of young teenage boys he even hired a few of them to work at the shop, and Dean constantly tried flirting with them during their shifts. He even cleared out a back room and installed a pool table so he could take the workers and the young school students back there to play and hang out. He befriended a 12-year-old boy named David Brooks. He was one of the 6th grade students that he had lured with the free candy. And it didn't take long for David to become Dean's right-hand man. David became the first of many youthful companions he had befriended over the years. 
David said Dean was one of the only people that didn't make fun of his glasses. He treated him with respect, which no one ever did. And as the months passed by, Dean would wave his candy outside the shop to attract more students after they left school. Once he got David and a few others to trust him, he started taking them on trips to the beaches in South Houston. He also gave David rides on the back of his motorcycle and even let him ride the bike by himself when they were alone together. David used the friendship to his benefit. Basically, whenever he ran low on money, he would walk over to the candy shop and ask Dean for some spare cash, and Dean would always hand over a few bucks. So he quickly became like a father figure. Only a year after meeting David, the Coral Family Candy Company closed in 1968. Dean's mother struggled with the failure of her third marriage and couldn't run the store anymore. So she and Dean's half-sister decided to move to Colorado, while Dean stayed behind in Houston. He would keep in contact with his mother over the phone, but this would be the last time he ever saw her in person. With no job, Dean quickly found work as an electrician at the Houston Lighting and Power Company. His brief experience as a radio repairman in the Army later got him work testing electrical relay systems, and he would end up working this job for the rest of his life. In the meantime, he stayed in his apartment in Houston and even started dating a single mother named Betty Hawkins. And now that his parents weren't around, he also formed a closer relationship with David. Dean knew that David's parents were divorced and rarely involved in his life. His father lived in Houston and his mother had moved to Beaumont, 85 miles east of Houston. So he rarely had any supervision. In 1970, when he was 15 years old, David dropped out of high school and went to live with his mother in Beaumont. By now, he had known Dean for three years. So whenever he came back to visit his father in Houston, he would always visit Dean at his apartment as well. Dean would even bring David on his dates with his girlfriend. He even told David that he would always have a place to stay if he needed one. One night when David was visiting, Dean urged him to start experimenting with his sexuality. Of course, what Dean actually meant was that David should start experimenting with him. And it didn't take long to convince David because Dean knew how to manipulate him. He knew he came from a poor family, so Dean paid him some money to let Dean perform fellatio on him. And they kept this a secret. That same year, David moved back to Houston to live with his father, and he now considered Dean's apartment his second home. But he didn't realize that this second home would soon become a secret den for rape, torture, and murder. From 1970 to 1973, Dean would reveal the monster that he truly was. His victims were males between the ages of 13 and 20, but most were in their mid-teens. But no one knows when Dean transformed into a monster, or if he had been a monster all along. But in 1970, he decided it was time to commit some of the most disturbing acts of sexual violence in American history. Dean's first victim was an 18-year-old freshman named Jeffrey Conan. On September 25, 1970, Jeffrey had been hitchhiking with another student from the University of Texas back to his parents' home in Houston. The driver dropped him off alone on the corner of Westheimer Road and South Voss Road near the uptown neighborhood of Houston, and this was the last time he was ever seen alive. Dean lived nearby in an apartment at 3300 Yorktown Street near the intersection. Dean likely spotted Jeffrey on the side of the road and offered him a ride to his parents' house. Jeffrey accepted, not realizing what was about to happen. 
Dean then bound Jeffrey's hands and feet together with rope and forced a cloth rag down his throat. Dean then took him to an undisclosed location where he sexually abused and raped him. When he was through, he placed his hands around Jeffrey's neck and manually strangled him to death. He wrapped the body of the 18-year-old in plastic sheets, drove him out to High Island Beach, and then buried him in a shallow grave. But before burying him, he dumped a few dozen limes and squeezed the juices over his body to try and hide the smell. Around the same time, Dean's thirst for sexual violence got worse by the day. One night, Dean's friend David Brooks happened to be stopping by Dean's Yorktown apartment, and he heard strange noises coming from inside. And when he opened the door, he spotted Dean assaulting two teenage boys strapped to a four-poster bed. Dean jumped up and said, I'm just having some fun. It was an image David would never be able to get out of his head. The two boys were strapped to the opposite sides of a wooden board that Dean had made himself, and this device would later become known as Dean's torture board. This was a slab of unpainted plywood, about eight feet long and two feet wide, and he had drilled holes into the corners where he could put the ropes and tie his victims to. Uh, Other times he would handcuff them into each hole and bind their feet also with nylon rope. Um, He'd used this device in almost every single one of his murders. Uh, He would basically tie them up um, for possibly days at a time, leave them there with no food, and this is where he would just torture them, sexually abuse them until he figured he was through with them and then kill them. Um, He had to have been able to keep them quiet too. Yeah, I think he... Just always bound, kept, kept them the, gagged the cloth rags in their mouth yep i think uh, also what this indicates is like obviously he did some research on this or this is just a sick invention from his head right and it sounds almost something like medieval honestly like yeah a medieval torture device yeah and there are pictures of it it's very simple it's literally just a, just a board ply board yeah plywood board with holes in it and uh this is sometimes he would put people like these two victims, he would put them back to back. So he would strap them to either side. It's crazy that he was able to get two at one time. Right. Or I guess maybe he got one, brought him back, strapped out. So then the other one came in and already, that's just right. Like, he might've abducted him at different times. Yeah. It's yeah. crazy. Cause like I said, at the beginning, a lot of the information comes from his accomplices, which David Brooks is one of them. Yep. And, and then, we don't even know prior how long he had been doing this. I mean, it could have been for a while. Yeah, for years, possibly. Uh, Uh, David Brooks also later said, once they were on the board, they were as good as dead. It was all over but the shouting and the crying. Pretty uh, brutal. The images popping into my head is just horrific. Yeah, I can't imagine. Uh, So when David Brooks saw the assault on the two boys strapped to the board, he wasn't sure if he was disgusted or intrigued. Either way, Dean ran over to David and slammed the apartment door behind him. He then bribed David with a car in exchange for his silence about what he saw. David agreed. Soon after, Dean bought David a green Chevy Corvette, and he told him he ended up killing the two boys that night. But after seeing the riches that Dean had stored away, David was able to look the other way. Not only that, he was willing to work for Dean for more money and perks. Dean promised him $200 for every boy that David could lure to his apartment, and he immediately got to work. On December 15, 1970, David lured two 14-year-old boys, James Glass and Danny Yates, to the apartment. He promised it was just to hang out and maybe drink a few beers. 
He actually found them at a religious rally near Houston Heights, and James was an acquaintance of David. He had even visited Dean's apartment before, but nothing happened that time around. But this time, both the 14-year-old boys were tied to the torture board, raped, strangled, and then buried at Southwest Boat Storage. Dean had actually rented this boat shed the month before so he could hide his victims' bodies. He then waited for six weeks to attack again, making sure that the police weren't on his trail. On January 30th, 1971, Dean and David were out in town when they spotted two teenage boys, 15-year-old Donnie and his 13-year-old brother, Jerry Waldrop, walking from a church toward the local bowling alley. Out in front of the church, they promised them both weed and beer if they got into Dean's van. This would later become known as Dean's torture van. It's basically just a simple white Ford van uh, with the windows blocked out in the back. Um, There's no proof that he ever tortured his victims inside, but they still called it the torture van. It was just uh, inside he had basically constructed pegboards along the walls, which I I assume they're stronger pegboards than what are in your normal workshop because I had some pegboards in my workshop. Yeah, they're not very strong. Yeah, yeah. where you hang tools. So I think it was something tougher. Reinforced, maybe had like um, plyboard behind it or something that it was... Yeah, stuck to. Yeah, and so he had a bunch of holes and this is basically where he would gag his victims and then tie them to the boards until he could transport them to some other place. And then uh, he also used this after he killed them. He would store them in the back and go to take and bury him some people think he actually used this van to do all of his business inside though yeah there's there's no evidence that it actually happened but people think since i mean he went through the time to set this all up so it seems likely that he probably did at some point yeah and i think david brooks had mentioned he was out in california sometimes and so no one really knows like what he was doing out there that's crazy Dean then drove the two boys back to Dean's new spot at Place One Apartments, 3200 Magnum Road, which is about five miles north of Heights. Inside the new apartment, Dean raped, tortured, and strangled them both to death. And this time, David stood in the corner and watched Dean strangle them individually. Then they hauled the bodies back to the van and drove them out to bury them in the boat shed. Even though the boys' home was only half a mile from where the last two boys had been abducted, the police still didn't investigate. The Waldrop's father, Everett, filed two missing persons reports for both of his sons. At the time, there was no missing persons division in the Houston Police Department, so the paperwork was buried. Seeing that nothing was being done, Everett showed up to the station every day for eight months straight. He desperately urged police to do something about his missing sons. He also told the Houston Chronicle, quote, I was there about as much as the chief was, but all they said was, why are you here? you know your boys are runaways. Everett even informed police about the rumor that a man named Dean Coral had been burying bodies at a local boat shed. Which, as we know, was true. But the police were not concerned at the time. Which is so weird to me that they were like, they just thought all these boys were runaways. And I get it was a totally different time period back then. And, you know, I hear stories from my my parents and stuff about how everybody just kind of roamed around all the time and it was very common for kids to run away and you know stay away for a few days or whatever and then come home and so i guess at the time because that happened so often 
that was like the excuse the police gave all the time. Like, oh, we don't have time to go chase down runaways. So they'll probably come back home. Yeah, it happens all the time. You just go to the main road and hitchhike, make your way to the next city, go party and come back. Yeah, it wasn't wasn't unheard of. It was quite common. Not knowing that there's this there's this monster preying upon this advantage that he has. He full well know knew that nobody's gonna be looking for him for a while, so gives me time to do my business and discard of the bodies. Yep. He even identified the boat shed, but when police conducted a brief search around the shed, they said it was all just a hoax. After this though, Dean soon realized he had no reason to stop his spree. His accomplice David developed a guilty conscience over the months, but he didn't have the strength to turn in Dean. The bribes were too good. Plus, he saw Dean as a father figure and turning him in would be the ultimate betrayal. David was only 16 years old at the time, and Dean seemed to be the only good thing in his life. He ended up dropping out of Waltrip High School and spent more time with Dean, and in return, Dean showered him with gifts and money. On March 9, 1971, Dean and David drove around looking for some new victims, and that's when they spotted 15-year-old Randall Harvey leaving the gas station where he worked. David knew Randall from the neighborhood, So he yelled at him from the car, offering Randall a ride home. But of course, they weren't going to head back to Randall's home. Instead, they took Randall back to Dean's apartment, where he raped and tortured the 15-year-old. But instead of strangling him this time, Dean decided to take a pistol and shoot Randall execution-style in the head. And like always, he took the body to the shed and buried it. Only two and a half months later, Dean and David were back on the hunt. They found two boys on the north side of the Heights, 16-year-old Mally Winkle and 14-year-old David Hillegeist. Mally used to work at Coral's candy shop, and David had visited the shop a few years before. He had stayed in the shop for so long, his mother had to come and get him. Both boys were brought back to Dean's apartment, where he strangled them in the torture room and buried their bodies out near the boat shed. After the murders, police officers in the juvenile division heard that Mally, the 16-year-old, had made a short phone call to his mother, Selma, just before he disappeared. He had told her that he was out at the beach town of Freeport swimming with friends, and he was last seen climbing into a white van. Police initially thought that the boys were just runaways and disappeared, but the boys' parents, Fred and Dorothy, were not accepting the police's theory. Dorothy was a soft-spoken homemaker, and Fred worked as a street painter and they both knew their son would never take off without telling them. Plus, he and his family planned to leave for a vacation in Hill Country the day after he disappeared. He had actually packed up his clothes, which were still at the house, and he left $20 on his dresser that he planned on spending on that trip. So if he had run away, why the hell would he not leave with his clothes and money? Why would that be left behind? Dorothy and Fred had heard from police that their son had actually been swimming at Freeport that night, that that other boy had gone missing. So they hopped in their Ford Galaxy and headed down to the beach. They went around showing everyone a picture of their son, but no one had seen him. Eventually, they returned to their home in Houston. The couple, along with their neighbor, printed off 500 posters and promised a $1,000 reward for any information involving their son or that other boy who had gone missing. Then they took out a loan to hire a private investigator. And after some searching, the PI came back to them with a theory. He believed the boys were taken by a man called Chicken Joe, who provided male sex workers to clients. 
and their son might have been abducted and forced into a sex trafficking ring. After hearing this, Dorothy and Fred drove out to the Montrose area and parked their car outside a local gay bar called the Silver Dollar Saloon. They watched the door all night, hoping to see their son being taken in or out. But there was no sign of their son. Weeks passed without any trace, and Dorothy called the police station almost every day. She told them any rumors she heard regarding her son or sex trafficking. She even told them about specific people she thought they should interrogate. Through these rumors, she heard that the other boy, Mally, had a friend who drove a Plymouth GTX, and she had seen the car herself slowly rolling through the neighborhood, scoping for kids outside. A dark figure sat behind the steering wheel. She actually caught the license plate, which was TMF 724. But police really didn't do too much with that information that Dorothy provided. If police had bothered to listen to her, they would have discovered that this car belonged to none other than Dean Quarrel. It didn't take long for Dean to start looking for another accomplice to bring into this killing operation and form a trio. A 15-year-old neighborhood boy named Elmer Wayne Henley Jr., who went by Wayne, came by the Hilligai's house to ask about their son David. He had heard that he had gone missing, and Wayne was a good friend of David's. He only lived a half block away from them, and they always hung out in their free time. He asked Dorothy if he could have some of the posters to hang up around the Heights neighborhood. Wayne was a strong-headed teenager who had a juvenile assault charge on his record. He also got a reputation around the neighborhood for drinking beer, smoking weed, and always chasing the local girls. He was often seen hanging out the local Long John Silvers on 23rd Street or the Jack in the Box on 20th. And much like David Brooks, he had a complicated relationship with his parents. His father would often get drunk and physically assault his entire family. Wayne's parents, Mary and Elmer Sr., had divorced in 1970, and around the same time, he dropped out of high school and got a part-time job working for his mother. Wayne had made friends with David Brooks, and it wasn't long before he made friends with Dean Quarrel in 1971 after being introduced to each other through David. Wayne later said, quote, Maybe Dean was considering me as one of his next victims, but we hit it off. He was a smart, clean-cut, nicely-dressed man. He listened to me. He explained things to me. It was important that Dean liked me. He was kind. Dean became close with Wayne. And he later came around the Henley house to work on Wayne's mother's car. He seemed like a nice man, his mother later recalled. And this was the case for a lot of the people who met Dean. Wayne's mom thought he was so pleasant that she even invited him to Easter dinner in April of that year. Most couldn't tell that something was off about him. He knew how to disguise himself and keep his sick and twisted desires hidden. His co-workers at Houston Lighting and Power only had good things to say about him. And one of the property managers at Dean's apartment even said he was as good as a tenant as we'd ever had. Meanwhile, they had no idea that he was sexually torturing, raping, and strangling young boys in the apartment building. Even Dean's own girlfriend, Betty Hawkins, who he had now dated for three years, didn't know the man behind the mask. Betty claimed that Dean was never sexually aggressive with her. Once, when they were in bed together, they began having sex, but he suddenly stopped. He told her he just wasn't feeling it, but she claimed that that was the only thing she noticed that was out of the ordinary. To her, he was a wonderful man who created the illusion that he wanted to settle down and get married. She also ignored the fact that David and Wayne always tagged along on their dates. Dean had also fooled Wayne for a long time, too. The only person who knew Dean's darkest secrets at this point was David, but Wayne would soon be brought into the inner circle. 
Dean first planted the seeds of secrecy by telling Wayne that if he had ever had things to sell, even if they were stolen, to bring them to him. Dean promised Wayne he could easily make some money for his family. Once he had gained his trust, he explained to Wayne that he belonged to an underground organization that sold underage boys into sex trafficking rings out in California. And this is when he made this same promise to Wayne, just like he did to David a few years earlier. There would be $200 in it for him for every boy he could lure to his apartment. When Dean got desperate, sometimes he would even offer up to $1,500. And just like David, Wayne was excited to be a part of this crime ring. He was bored of his life in heights, and he trusted Dean like a father. And this would finally give him some direction in life. One day in early 1972, while driving around with Dean... Wayne spotted an unnamed teenager with long hair. They pulled over and Wayne shouted over to the teenager from the window. He asked if he wanted to smoke some weed. With no hesitation, the teenager accepted the offer. And before he knew it, he was back at Dean's apartment. By now, Dean had moved to 925 Schuler Street and he brought his torture instruments with him. Wayne left the boy in the apartment with Dean thinking he was shipping him off to an underground sex ring He still didn't realize that Dean was torturing, raping, and killing the boys he brought over. He has no idea Dean would use pliers to tear out their pubic hairs one by one while they were still conscious. Then he would take small glass rods and insert them into the boys' urethras before shattering them while still inside the victim's penises. After he disposed of the victims, Dean would keep a small trinket from his victim, usually a house key found in their pockets. The day after Wayne brought over his first victim, Dean handed over $200 just like he promised. But almost immediately after, Wayne found out what was really going on. And just like David, Wayne refused to go to the police. Even when Dean later confessed to Wayne that he had abducted, raped, tortured, and murdered his own friend, David Hillegeist, Wayne still kept his loyalty. Seeing that Wayne wouldn't turn against him, Dean ordered him to bring another boy, and Wayne obeyed. Frank Aguirre was the next victim, an old friend of Wayne's who worked with him at Long John Silver's. He waited outside the restaurant until the end of Frank's shift, and Frank was under the impression that Wayne just wanted to hang out, you know, drink some beer and smoke some weed, like they did all the time. But soon he found himself at the door of Dean's apartment. Just inside, David and Dean waited. Once they brought him in, they acted like it was just a regular hangout with friends. But then Dean wanted to play his famous handcuff game. So the handcuff game, I don't know if you remember this from uh, John Wayne Gacy would later use this coincidentally. I don't know if he was inspired by this or not, but they both did the same trick. Basically, he would put on handcuffs. Sometimes he would get Wayne to do it as well. They would both put on a pair of real handcuffs, clamp them around their wrists in front of them, but they would secretly keep the keys inside one of their pockets. So they would maybe distract the victim they would make them look the other way while they snagged the key and unlocked the the handcuffs once they were magically out of the handcuffs then they would say hey man now you try it like it's easy we'll show you how to do it it's an easy trick then the victim would willingly handcuff themselves and it was easy as that wow especially after you know if they're hanging out drinking smoking get them loosened up a little bit yeah it's yeah. really easy to convince them to do that yeah so that was the first step this handcuff game once that was done Dean then dragged Frank into his torture room and slammed the door shut and this was when as Wayne put it Dean had his fun with him 
and Wayne and David ignored the violent noises and muffled screams coming through the closed torture room door. The agonizing screams muffled by the cloth rag would grow exhausted as the hours passed. Dean would fondle the victim's genitals and sometimes take small bites at their penis or testicles. And once he was satisfied, he would then proceed to kill them. While Dean kept up his murders at the new place on Schuler, some things didn't go as planned. The trio once lured a 19-year-old youth named Billy Reidinger, which was one of David's good friends. Billy was tied to the torture board and molested and abused by Dean. But over time, David developed a guilty conscience. Something finally got to him as he watched his good friend suffer. He then begged Dean to let Billy go. Even though Dean almost never let his victims walk free, this time he made an exception. And after Billy fled the house, they worried about whether or not he was going to keep his mouth shut. Wayne hated the fact that they set the victim free. So one day he waited for David to come over the house before ambushing him. He knocked David unconscious as he walked in through the front door. Dean and Wayne then dragged him to the torture room and tied his limbs to the four bedposts. There, Dean physically assaulted David. But despite the assault, David thought he deserved it. He felt a combination of guilt for helping Dean kill his friends and guilt for letting Dean down. But in the end, he stayed loyal to Dean. Not long after, Wayne brought over another victim, Mark Scott. Mark actually just lived down the street from Wayne, and they grew up together. Mark's mom remembered that one time Mark had thrown a party and Wayne was the last to leave because they had such a good time together. But now all Wayne was worried about was pleasing Dean. In a way, he was proving to Dean that he was more loyal than David. So once he got Mark to the apartment, they tried to bind his hands, but Mark grabbed a knife and began stabbing Dean. The blade caught his shirt and barely broke the skin. Dean then wrestled with Mark to get the knife out of his hand, but the situation quickly got out of control as they underestimated how strong Mark was. So Wayne ran out of the room and came back with a 22 caliber pistol in his hand. When Mark saw Wayne aiming the pistol at his head, he gave up the knife. Dean and Wayne then violently wrapped a cord around Mark's throat, cinched it as tight as they could, and watched the life drain out of his eyes. By the end of 1972, Dean thought he had built his dream team. Together, the trio was a well-oiled killing machine, and there seemed to be no end in sight. One after the next, the kill count kept growing. On an evening in late 1972, they abducted another victim, 17-year-old Billy Balch, who used to sell the Kroll's candy door-to-door. They also snatched his 16-year-old friend, Johnny DeLone. The two had been walking from Billy's house to the local convenience store to grab some sodas, and they were never seen again. Later, the trio also abducted Billy's younger brother, Michael, while he was on his way to get a haircut. By now, a slew of young boys had disappeared, but the police continued to ignore the problem. One after the next, victims kept vanishing. The next victim was one of their oldest ones at age 20. He was a hitchhiker named Ray Blackburn, who was heading home to Baton Rouge, Louisiana to see his wife and her newborn, but he never made it. Then they captured a young teenager, Homer Garcia, who took a driver's ed class with Wayne. Then Wayne noticed a new family had moved into an apartment building right across the street from him, so they snatched the two young boys when they left the apartment one day. Another victim, 15-year-old Billy Ray Lawrence, was kidnapped, and they forced him to write a letter to his father, who worked at the mailroom for the Houston Post. In the letter, it seemed like deep in his heart. Billy knew he wasn't going to make it out alive. The letter said, Dear Dad, 
I've decided to go to Austin because I have a good job offer. I am sorry that I decided to leave, but I just had to go. P.S. I will be back in late August. Hope you understand, but I had to go. Daddy, I hope you know I love you. Your son, Billy. That sure sounds like a... I know I'm not going to survive this. Yeah, especially at the end there. Uh, I just don't understand how they were doing this in an apartment building. Yeah, how the hell did they pull this off? Yeah, and they had shot a few victims too. Right. I have no idea how they were shooting. Is it just victims. that bad of a neighborhood that nobody says anything? That, I have like, no idea. Nobody wants to snitch on anybody? I think so. it was. Now it's kind of a nice neighborhood, but yeah, At I the think time, back then, yeah, it was kind it of rough. Because like... I just don't understand how they're pulling all these bodies out there with nobody seeing them. Right. I mean, they're pulling, I mean, so many that they didn't slip up once. Right. And someone saw something or people saw it and just didn't say anything. And you live in an apartment complex. What? It's not like, are we assuming he's living on the first floor and the right, door is always like connected back to the outside? Yeah. yeah. It doesn't like, make any sense. Yeah. I mean, they're plastic wrapping these boys. They weren't chopped up like no, into small pieces. No, it wasn't they like they're bringing garbage carcasses. Bags. Yeah. How the hell did nobody see this and report it? Right. That's crazy to me. Like the other victims that Dean enjoyed, Billy was kept alive for four days, but not out of mercy. It's because he enjoyed raping and torturing him so much. He was bound with nylon on the torture board the entire time. And after days of sexual torture, Dean finally killed Billy and buried him out at Lake Sam Rayburn. If Dean ever didn't like his victims, he violated them in a different way. Rusty Branch was the son of a Houston police radio technician, and for whatever reason, Dean hated him with a passion. So on the day they abducted him, Dean approached Rusty while bound to the torture board. He took off his pants and bent down toward the teenager's genitals. He put Rusty's penis and testicles inside his mouth for a moment, then he quickly clenched his jaw and literally tore off the boy's genitals in one swift bite. After placing the genitals in a plastic bag, he then buried them beside the body. After the countless slew of murders and mutilations, Dean moved from his apartment and into a small Pasadena home. This was the first place he lived by himself that wasn't close to the Heights neighborhood. The place was owned by his father, Arnold. He lived in town and he had recently remarried, so Dean had kept some contact with him over the years. After renting the house, Dean's desperation for blood only worsened. Meanwhile, Wayne moved to Mount Pleasant for a few months and supposedly Dean stopped killing in the meantime. When Wayne got back to Houston, he later recalled that Dean started making these short jerky movements. He'd started smoking a cigarette, which he usually never did, and he'd say he needed to do a new boy. It was like Dean had developed a physical addiction to rape, torture, and murder, and he hadn't killed in four months. So in the summer of 1973, between June and August, Dean released his pent-up desire. He slaughtered eight more boys with the help of Wayne and David. One was bludgeoned in the chest with a blunt object before being strangled to death. Another was gagged with a Turkish towel in his mouth that was then taped shut, and then he was shot in the head two times. While he bled out, Dean would molest the bodies before wrapping them in plastic and burying them. Sometimes he would get Wayne to shoot his victims. There was one time where Wayne shot a boy in the face, blowing his jaw off. Instead of putting the boy out of his misery, Dean kept the boy in his torture room and molested him as he died. Five out of eight of these victims were from the Heights neighborhood, and still local police couldn't connect the dots, or they refused to. They were absolutely just worthless, apparently. They had convinced themselves that all of these boys were runaways. 
all of them not worth looking into. And even the local media hadn't caught on to the disappearances yet. Years later, uh, a retired Houston Post reporter, Tom Kennedy, actually remembered a victim's mother storming into the newsroom one afternoon. Uh, She approached Tom and desperately begged him to find her son. And of course, years later, he said he wanted to, but it was just one of those things they never got around to. And I guess, I don't know, in an era of no personal computers, there's no Amber Alert, no internet. So the parents who had lost their sons didn't really even know that, you know, it could have been just around the block. Another victim was, another victim's family was living there, but they just had no idea because news Nobody and neighborhood. Was tracking that. There's, yeah. And like news and neighborhood rumors didn't spread that way back then. It was all slow word of mouth where now you can hop on Facebook, the neighborhood Facebook page. Next and like, door. Yeah. Yeah. So like everyone's hopping on there and you can, it would be so easy back the concept of like neighborhood watch wasn't even a thing. Right. Yeah. Versus now there's that there's, you know, there's community uh, groups and like you're saying, there's all these online pages that, I mean, now everybody's all up in everybody's business oh, almost too much. Yeah. And shit gets wild on, on next door. That's for sure. But at the same time, it's, it's great because it connects the, the neighborhood together. And if, you know, now it's like, people's pets getting lost or things like that you have a quick way to get in contact with all your neighbors so if they had had something like this back then this would have you know they would have figured out like oh my god your kid's gone your kid's gone your kid's gone it's all kind of in similar circumstances they're all the same age and they probably would have been able to get you know a larger group of people together because imagine if it was just a whole group of parents storming the media office i mean you were talking all of these victims parents came together and went to the police and the police were like oh shit there's something bigger going on here because every single one of the parents is there in front of them versus like individually reaching out to them and the police are like oh it's just a runaway yeah. it'd be harder to to use that excuse I yeah, feel like. it's like poor everett the the dad who lost his son he had, had camped out at the police station for eight months. But imagine if, yeah, if it was the whole neighborhood camping out. Because now it'd be like, they'd be protesting. It'd be like this huge thing. The media would be there and the police would actually have to do something about it. Right. But it was so easy to just turn away a single parent and be like, oh, you know, Johnny ran away. Yep. You know, show me proof that he didn't and we'll do something. But he's dead by this point. So yep. it's, too, and that's the thing with missing persons cases is like, you have to jump on that shit right away. Otherwise, after after 24 48 hours i mean it's very difficult to recover people at that point especially if they're abducted so it's like they're just sitting by while i mean i feel the police should be held responsible for this in some way because they just didn't do their job and you could say well they didn't have the division they didn't have the resources the blah 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 but at the same time it's like your job is to protect the public and the neighborhoods that you patrol it's crazy to me that that like were they even patrolling these areas like there wasn't just like like what the hell was the houston police department doing at the time it seems like absolutely nothing yeah because like at the very least especially i i know um whenever i've lived in apartment complexes in the past i mean the police oftentimes are hanging out in those areas because they know shit pops off in apartment complexes a lot of the times so that's where they kind of go and patrol a lot of a lot of calls for service are to apartment complexes so the fact that all those, you know, all those different abductions, all those years, he's in the apartment complexes, is never caught. He's seen a few times by, you know, witnesses out, out in public, 
but it's like where the hell's the police the whole time yeah and like you could write it off as maybe it's just like ignorance or neglect but i almost think at this rate by now as years have passed and you know potentially dozens and dozens of boys have gone missing it's almost like they're actively neglecting it's no longer just ignorance or like oh well it might be i think they're like actually trying to push this down well now it's like we fucked up big time right and so we don't want to admit that we weren't doing our job and what's crazy to me is like if you look at this era in history the war on drugs baby like that's like was primary focus during this time is like fighting the war on drugs that's like when it really got kicked off and so if you went and looked probably at the files for the Houston police department for the 60s, 70s, they were probably all over the drugs. They're arresting people left and right for marijuana. Meanwhile, kids are getting abducted, tortured and killed. Right. Literally in like the same area that they're, you know, Dean probably was driving around in his torture van, which I don't know how this dude avoids getting pulled over. Because if you have obstructed windows in your van, I mean, I think any police officer is going to be suspicious of that. And I think that's against the law to obstruct your back windows and things like that. You can't do that. And so how did he avoid police contact this whole time? I mean, for all we know, maybe he did get pulled over a couple times and he just was able to talk his way out of it as most serial killers do. They're just charismatic enough and manipulative enough that they're able to kind of talk themselves out of these situations but it's just mind-blowing to me that dean's out there preying on all these boys in his van transporting all these bodies everywhere and he could have most likely driven past police pulling over you know uh, a, a black individual for drugs or something and that's what they were focused on meanwhile this monster's just rolling around not a care in the world i mean i'm sure there's some racial bias you know going on during this time period with the police and things like that. So their focus is on, you know, not the white candy man, but you know, for all the drug dealers that are in the neighborhood. It's just, it's absurd to me that this was able to go on for so long with seemingly the police never doing a damn thing about it. It's crazy. Yeah. And I I know it's like a, it was a poor neighborhood back then in the seventies. So honestly, police were probably more worried about antagonizing the people that live there rather than, trying to actually trying to police yeah oh man it's 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 truly mind-blowing so by this time dean and his crew had kidnapped a literally unknown number of young boys we just know it was a large number this killing machine would have kept running but david brooks soon began to pull away from the group he had gotten into a serious relationship with a woman and got her pregnant ended up marrying her soon after The couple moved into an apartment outside of the Heights, and Dean saw David less and less each day. Around the same time, Wayne also tried to put some distance between him and Dean. He enlisted in the Navy, but he was rejected for a lack of an education. Even though he wanted some distance, he knew it was almost impossible to leave Dean without consequences. Dean was openly attracted to Wayne's younger brothers, so if Wayne wasn't around to stop him, he knew Dean would rape and kill them too so he kept helping Dean find more victims. But Dean's killing machine began to break down. On August 7th, 1973, Wayne brought a friend, Tim Curley, and his girlfriend Rhonda Williams over to Dean's place. Rhonda was a popular girl, and her boyfriend used to be Frank Aguirre. 
who Dean had killed the year before. Frank was Wayne's good friend, and Rhonda had actually gotten engaged to Frank just before Wayne lured him to Dean. Wayne would always tell Rhonda that she should stop waiting for Frank to come home. Wayne would lie to her and tell her that he had a gut feeling he wasn't ever coming back, even though deep down he knew the dark truth. The night that they went over to Dean's place, Wayne claimed that it was just supposed to be a fun night. Tim was supposed to be the only guest at first, and no one was supposed to die. Wayne later brought Rhonda along because her father had just physically abused her and she didn't feel safe at her home. So they blew off steam in Dean's living room by drinking some beers and huffing paint. Around 5 a.m., they had drank and huffed enough until they passed out. Everyone except Dean, of course. Once they were all asleep, he figured this was the moment to strike. Wayne woke up to Dean handcuffing him on the floor. He also saw the other two bound with nylon ropes while still in a daze. And Dean had shoved rags into Rhonda and Tim's mouse. As Wayne watched, Dean punted Rhonda in the ribs over and over with his feet. And he listened to the deep pounding on her chest that shook the floor. Dean clearly wanted to send a message to Wayne. He should have never brought a girl into his home. And he bent down and told Wayne that he had ruined everything. Wayne then screamed from the floor, promising that he would kill Rhonda himself, but only if he would untie him. Dean believed him, so he loosened Wayne's bindings. The two of them left the room for a moment and then returned. Dean wielded a twenty-two pistol, and Wayne carried a knife with an 18-inch blade. Dean told Wayne to cut off Tim's clothes so he could rape him. Then he commanded Wayne to rape Rhonda while he was raping Tim, and Wayne agreed. Once Wayne cut through Tim's clothes, Dean dragged him into the back room and tied him to the torture board. Meanwhile, Rhonda slowly regained consciousness. While still in a daze, she looked into Wayne's eyes and asked, Is this for real? Wayne said yes. And with a desperate look in her eyes, Rhonda said, Are you going to do anything about it? In the back room, Dean had undressed himself and began sexually assaulting Tim. Wayne headed to the hallway and asked if he could take Rhonda into the other room but Dean ignored him. He was too focused on violating Tim, who was half-conscious. In this moment, a pang of guilt came over Wayne. As he looked back at Rhonda lying on the floor, Wayne finally found the strength to stop the mayhem. He snagged the pistol while Dean wasn't looking. He then aimed the gun and said, I can't go on any longer. I can't have you kill all of my friends. Dean then walked up to Wayne and taunted him. Kill me, Wayne, he said confidently. You won't do it. Wayne took a few steps back as Dean kept pacing toward him. Wayne hesitated, but then a shot rang out, and blood burst from Dean's forehead. The shot had gone straight into his head. But the twenty-two caliber bullet was too small to do critical damage. Even after being shot in the head, Dean kept stumbling toward Wayne. Two more shots rang out and blood exploded from Dean's left shoulder. He winced when the bullets hit him, but he kept moving. He spun around toward the door and made it into the hallway. A streak of blood trailed behind him on the floor. Wayne then shot him three more times in the lower back and shoulder before Dean finally slid down the wall to the floor. A streak of blood painted the wall beside him. He died where he fell, bloody, naked, and curled up against the hallway wall. After watching Wayne gun down Dean, Rhonda believed that even though Wayne had been absolutely consumed by evil, there was still a shred of good left in him. 
and that last shred finally ended the nightmare. She later said, Wayne saved my life, and he saved Tim's too. Wayne killed the devil. At 8.24 a.m. that morning, Wayne frantically called the Pasadena police. He blurted to the operator, Y'all better come here right now, I just killed a man. He then gave him the address of 2020 Lamar Drive. And Wayne, Tim, and Rhonda stumbled out the front porch, took a seat, and waited for the police to show up. While they waited, Wayne made a confession. He told the others that it wasn't the first time he had shot someone to death. He'd actually done it four or five times. He then tossed the pistol over to the driveway. He also looked over at Tim and told him he could have made $200 for bringing him to Dean. And they just sat in silence until the police arrived. When a squad car pulled up, the officer spotted the 22 pistol on the driveway and the three teenagers sitting on the porch. Wayne identified himself and told the officer that he was the one who made the phone call and that Dean's dead body was inside. Before the officer entered the house, he confiscated the pistol and put the teenagers in the back of his patrol car. After going inside and finding Dean's body, he then came out and read Wayne his Miranda rights. Wayne interrupted and yelled out from the car, I don't care who knows about it, I have to get it off my chest. When they interviewed him at the station, Wayne mentioned the boat shed at the rental place where Dean had buried bodies. So a slew of officers raided Southwest Boat Storage and they brought Wayne along with them. He pointed out the windowless stall on number 11. Inside the boat shed, they found a half-stripped stolen car, a child's bike, two empty bags of lime, an iron drum, water containers, and a box full of teenage boys' clothing. Within minutes of digging into the soil, police found the first body. It was a blonde teenage boy lying face up and wrapped in plastic. A layer of lime covered the body, but the smell of death reached everyone within 20 feet. And beneath this body was a naked 13-year-old boy, half decayed with ligature marks around his neck. And beneath that, a skeleton that might have been there for years. 30-year-old detective Larry Earls dug deep into the earth, pulling the bodies out one by one. Many were strangled to death with their bindings still wrapped around their necks. Others had been shot to death. And they noticed that many of the genitals looked like they had been chewed on or completely severed. Every single body they uncovered that day had signs of sexual abuse and sexual torture. As Larry dug them up, he could barely stand the smell of decaying flesh. So he thought a cigarette would help get the smell out of his head. But his hands were so filthy from blood, sand, and decay, he couldn't pull out a cigarette for himself. Instead, he got a friend to continuously light cigarettes for him and place them in his mouth. When he finished one, they lit up another one. Meanwhile, Wayne kept confessing to the police. Supposedly, he said, quote, It's my fault. I can't help but feel guilty, like I done killed those boys myself. I caused them to be dead. I led them straight to Dean. During the excavation of several bodies, police allowed reporters to come up and interview Wayne, who they had in handcuffs, and they recorded him using a police radio phone to call his mother. Here's some of that phone call. It's Wayne. Yes, this is Mama, baby. Mama? Yeah. I killed Dean. Wayne? Ma'am? What are you doing? Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. Oh, God. Where are you? Um, it's all right. It's all right. It's all right. Where are you? I'm, I'm out of his warehouse. Where? Out of that warehouse, he keeps. Can I come out there? Yeah, yes. Oh. It's a Park. She can't, no, you can't come. 
I'm, I'm with the police, Mama. The reporter's first impression of him was pity. One reporter even wrote that he was kind of a folk hero who had slain a dragon. The excavation continued into the night and Wayne opened up more about his crimes. Here's a couple clips of Wayne talking to the media. What did he want you to do? He wanted to pay me to find people and bring them to him. And help him do his thing. And kill him and help him bury him. Did you not pay him? He was going to pay you. How much would he pay you per person? I don't know. He said $1,500 more. $1,500 a person. Pretty good. Wait, how do you feel about this whole idea? It's pretty grotesque. What do you mean by that? You read the dictionary? You've no, been carrying this around with you for a long time. I mean, didn't you almost crack several times? Yeah. How come this time? This time? What? <clears throat> I just haven't felt like I was going to be able to hold my sanity much longer. What provoked you that night for you to decide to tell it all? I just think these, all these people this much to let them know what's happening. So based on that, it seems like Wayne does have a conscience after all. And it's all kind of hitting him. So I think some of the controversy there is did they go along with Dean because of just the money? Or was it also because they were worried that Dean would then kill them? I think that was definitely what Wayne was saying when they talked about it later. Because um, he had younger brothers and he had known that Dean vocally said he was attracted to his younger brothers. I also think seeing Wayne, if you watch these videos, um, he always has his head down, his face covered like... He's ashamed, which in a lot of cases like this, you see serial killers totally proud yeah. to show their face. They talk about the murders like right, it's nothing, right. you know, where clearly it seems like he's the regret. Yeah, yeah, the regret is, I mean, how do you even like deal with that? All that on your conscience, like you let all of these boys to their death essentially and then he told uh Rhonda and tim out on the porch he's yeah like i've shot four or five people i could have got 200 bucks for tim he's kind of just letting it all out felt like he had had to get these things off his chest so by the next morning he actually gave a full written statement on his crimes with dean and david at the station police were surprised to see the young david brooks arrive as he was dragged inside by his father who looked furious. He told him that his son had something to say. David soon gave police a full confession but claimed he never killed anyone. David and Wayne then directed the police to go down to High Island Beach where many victims were buried. Locals were spending their free time in the sun, but they all looked concerned when a troop of police officers showed up with sniffing hounds and shovels in hand. And that's when they began uncovering even more bodies and they even set up a helicopter with thermal cameras to see if they could find any bodies that were recently buried. Throughout the investigation, they found victims at four different locations, 
and of all the corpses, some could be identified but others were severely decayed or completely skeletal. Some would take decades to identify while others would never be identified, and this made everyone wonder how long Dean had truly been doing this, and how many more might be buried across Texas or even the United States. Some of the more recent victims could be easily identified. One of the officers, Carl Siebeneicher, at the boat shed crime scene was horrified to find out that one of the victims was his own cousin, Marty Jones. Carl would later take his own life in 1977. Other victims were identified by their driver's licenses or social security cards that they had on them. Jimmy Glass was identified because his family was able to identify his beloved leather jacket resting next to his body. The mother of Frank Aguirre, Josephine, had been burning candles every day hoping her son would come home. She had already lost her son Ronnie when she accidentally ran him over in front of Helms Elementary School in 1969. And when reporters knocked on her door and gave her the news, all she could do was break down, sobbing. Even Wayne's own mother was in complete disbelief. It's uh, H-E-N-L-E-Y. Mrs. Henley is the uh, mother. A happy little old boy, usually. He's close to his family. He's always loved people. He, he, he tries to take care of his brothers. He didn't want none of them to have to drop out of school. I don't know what, he's just, he's just a little 17 year old boy that was close to his family, that's all I know. Do you believe your son did any of this? No, sir. Wayne's not that kind of person. Wayne loved too deep and too much. Homer Garcia's father, Luis, had just returned home from South Texas after burying his mother when a police officer arrived at his house and gave him and his wife Doris the news. Doris wouldn't sleep for days. She kept having nightmares of her son being buried alive and trying to claw his way back to the surface. Throughout the rest of the summer and into the fall, as all the bodies were identified, families gathered in the cemeteries. They each put their sons, brothers, nephews, and cousins to rest. One of the victim's mothers, Betty Cobble, had a job delivering flowers. After mourning the loss of her own son, she then found herself making flower arrangements for the funerals of the other victims. Danny Yates's parents tried to move to a new city, hoping for a fresh start, but they divorced soon after. The Waldrop's father, Everett, had lost both of his sons. He was the one who had camped out at the police station for eight months straight. Can't even imagine the anger you would have as a parent knowing you lost both of your kids to this monster. He ended up moving to Atlanta, but nothing changed. While there, he read in a paper that Dean was killing boys in an apartment just across the street from a construction project he used to work at. As he read the words, he realized that he might have been there at the job site working when his boys were being raped and murdered just across the street. Some of the other parents turned to the prescription drugs and alcohol to try and numb the pain. As for the Hilligeist family, they struggled with the fact that Wayne's family lived just down the street. Well, I was just heartbroken, that's all. Uh, uh, I don't know how to express myself, how I felt. I just felt just dead, that's all. What is your reaction now toward the Henleys that live just a block or so up the street? Uh, I have no bitterness. I've known them all these years, and, and, and I have a lot of compassion for them. I realize that this... 
even with our grief with our son possibly being dead and possibly him knowing about it, I, I, can, I can feel some passion for them because I feel that they're in a much tougher place right now than we are. The boy's mother, Dorothy, still had to cross paths with Wayne's mother, Mary, as they lived only a block away from each other. Every time they saw each other, Dorothy was reminded that Mary's son helped Dean rape and murder so many young boys in the neighborhood. From then on, the two women tried their best to be civil, but they never called each other by their first names ever again. It was strictly Mrs. Hillegeist and Mrs. Henley. Eventually, Mrs. Henley moved to East Texas years later. Occasionally, the women still saw each other at the grocery store and said hello, but that was all. Dorothy tried her best to forgive Mary, but she struggled to forgive Dean, David, and Wayne. Her youngest son, Stanley, once came home and found her on the floor. Photos and newspaper articles were spread all around her as she screamed, Why, God? Why? Jimmy Glass's mother, Ema, lost all control after she knew her son and lost her life to Dean Quarrel. Her other son, Willie, knows that she would see young men hitchhiking on the side of the road and she'd shout, That's Jimmy. We've got to turn around and they always would. One day while they were at home, she suffered a mental break and got a gun before dragging Willie's younger sister, Pamela, into the back bedroom. A SWAT team arrived soon after, and when they approached the bedroom door, she fired a bullet into the floor before screaming, They're not going to steal Pamela from me like they did my Jimmy. Once they finally calmed her down and got the pistol out of her hands, they took her to the Harris County Psychiatric Unit. Her son Willie later said, She was never the same, and neither was the rest of the family. Dean Quarrel didn't just kill 27 boys, he killed 27 families. That was the kill count at the time, 27 boys. Between David Wayne and the boys uncovered by the police, that was the official number. But the deeper investigators and journalists looked into the crime, they realized that number was probably much, much higher. Jeffrey Conan's murder was a prime example. Dean was able to capture Jeffrey, an 18-year-old, while he was hitchhiking across Texas to visit his girlfriend, and on September 1st, 1970, he was never seen again. This was three months before David Brooks, his first accomplice, had even known what Dean was doing behind closed doors. Many believe that Dean's murder spree was between 1970 and 1973, but between 1968 and 1970, a few thousand people were reported missing to the juvenile division of the Houston Police Department. Specifically, 42 boys that could have been likely victims were brought up to the police. Any or all of them could have been more of Dean's victims. Police excavated his Pasadena home and the property where the old candy shop used to be. But only a week after the first bodies were found at the boat shed, the police called off every excavation across town. Larry Earls, the man that had dug up the first discovered victim, said that Wayne and David both mentioned several other places where more bodies might have been. But the excavations were strictly called off until there was physical evidence that suggested bodies might be buried somewhere. Theories speculated that certain leaders in high up positions might have halted the excavations because they feared how high the body count would go. So they just stopped. At the time, the record for victims in a killing spree was 25 by Juan Corona in 1971. At the rate they were discovering victims, Dean Kroll was going to crush that record. But again, the search has stopped. John Wayne Gacy would later break the official record in 1978 with 33 boys, but many realized that Dean's victims could have been anywhere in Texas and even a few in California. In March 1975, the Houston police discovered a stash of pornographic pictures and films depicting 16 young boys. 
some were believed to be Dean's victims. Some police began to believe that statements Dean had told to Wayne and David about sex trafficking boys might have been true. This discovery led to the arrest of five individuals in Santa Clara, California. Before this, David Brooks had also told police that Dean's earliest victims might have been buried in California, but Houston police claim there is no conclusive evidence to tie Dean to the crime ring or California, and they declined to pursue any possible link between the pornographic stash and the Houston serial killings. They said that the victims' families had suffered enough. As for the victims in Texas, investigators pointed out suspicious gaps in Dean's murders. Coral's last known victim of 1971 disappeared on August 17th, and the first victim of 1972 disappeared on February 9th. So that meant no known victims were killed for almost six months, which was strange. Another four-month gap was between February 1st and June 4th, 1973. Supposedly Dean suffered from hydrocele, which many think that might have caused a big gap in his killings. Um, this is basically where it's a type of swelling in the scrotum between the testicles and the sac. It's mostly common in newborns, but usually goes away with treatment before the first birthday. But an adult can get it if they have an injury within the scrotum or other health problems. It's not painful or harmful most of the time, but it can get painful if it goes untreated and keeps swelling and it can make the testicles feel heavy. So it's most likely if Dean was suffering from this, he probably wouldn't want to be sexually would have been painful. Yeah. So he was just kind of like sitting back while it sort of healed or swelling went down. Yeah. So that was one of the theories of why there could be gaps in his killings. But no matter what the true number was, the negative publicity toward Houston came rolling in. Even the Vatican newspaper published an editorial on the killings, and the article claimed that the killings belonged to the domain of the devil. The Soviet Union newspapers also took easy shots at Houston, saying that the reasons for the killings were indifference and murderous bureaucracy. The police chief of Houston held a press conference to try to defend the police from the world media. He claimed that the victims were all runaways and their parents didn't do their best to look after them, which is, whew, that is the most offensive thing you could possibly say, right. because that is just simply not true. He then said that the links between the victims and the killers was only a myth created by the media. Even the mayor, Louis Welch, supported the police chief, and he was quoted as saying, the police can't be expected to know where a child is if his parents don't. It was true that some of the victims had run away from home before or had gotten into minor trouble with the law, but none of them had ever gotten into any serious trouble, and many had no run-ins with the law or even missed a day of school. After the local government's victim blaming, many of the victims' families became extremely critical of the Houston Police Department. For years, police had written victims off as runaways, and they ignored the obvious trend of boys disappearing from heights. As far as the families could tell, their sons were worthy of investigation. Soon after, the governor of Texas, Dolph Briscoe, made a public statement reaching out to runaways. He told them to contact their parents and let them know they were alive and well. Around the same time, a senator from Minnesota, Walter Mondale, wanted Congress to put $30 million toward halfway houses across the country. These would be specifically for teenage runaways so they could have a safe place to stay. And while many were concerned about runaways, many others were concerned about sexual orientation. The police chief ordered several raids on gay bars across the city. One of the city's first gay activists, Ray Hill, said that the police thought that gay men were all child molesters and killers, and they were treated like it. At the time, there was a very misguided thought that being gay was connected to pedophilia. Even the locals called them sexual deviants. 
Then they tried to push a petition that would set a curfew for juveniles at night, thinking their sons would be tempted to go to the gay bars at night. But they forgot that Dean Coral had abducted his victims in the middle of the day on the side of the street. Only a few got a glimpse of who Dean actually was and how he became a monster. One of the detectives that worked the case, David Mulliken, said many years later, quote, I think old Dean tried for years to be a normal person, to have a relationship with a woman, to do everything his mother wanted him to do, and all I can tell you is, something came unleashed inside of him. Madness, maybe. Or evil. Almost four decades after the discovery of the bodies, David said he could never forget the smell. He also said, quote, How that man was able to go out to that storage shed time after time and bury more dead boys is something I'll never understand. You get close to evil like that. No matter how long ago it was, it never leaves you. The story of Dean Coral stayed in the news cycle for several weeks in Houston. To help fan the flames, Dean's mother arrived from Colorado soon after, and she told the media her son must be innocent. She couldn't believe he would bury the bodies near the family log cabin they had once loaned out to family and friends on Lake Sam Rayburn. Around the same time, 12 grand jurors indicted Wayne and David. But they also released a report about how the police's investigation was so minimal that it left out the possible involvement of others and related criminal activities. Some of the jurors were so furious after seeing how little the police did that they went out and began investigating the crimes for themselves. Some even drove around town interviewing witnesses and tried to find the location of more bodies, but they didn't have the proper resources. As for Wayne, he was charged with six murders, and his trial began in San Antonio on July 1st, 1974. Dozens of witnesses were called, and Wayne's own written statements, including his confession, were shown to the court. 82 pieces of evidence were shown to the jury, including the torture board and strands of victim's hair. Wayne was not called to the stand, and he was found guilty soon after. On July 16, 1974, Wayne Henley was sentenced to six consecutive 99-year terms, a total of 594 years. He later appealed, claiming that the jury was not sequestered during the trial, and he was awarded a retrial. So he went to trial again in June 1979, and once again he was found guilty and got the same sentence as before. Here's a little clip of Wayne believing he's not guilty during an interview. Are you guilty of killing anyone at all? <clears throat> Am I guilty of killing anyone at all? No, I'm not. <laughs> Unless you could say Dean Quarles was killing. I defended myself. As for David Brooks, he was charged with only one murder in March 1975. His lawyer claimed that David had actually murdered anyone, and it was Dean and Wayne that did most of the work. But the jury didn't agree. David's trial lasted less than a week, and he was found guilty on March 4th, 1975. He was sentenced to life in prison. He showed no emotion during the sentencing, but his wife burst into tears in the middle of the courtroom. He tried to appeal his sentence, but failed. Through the years, both Wayne and David would apply for parole. They claimed they weren't the teenagers they used to be. But every time they applied, the victims' families would have to relive their grief. They'd write letters to the parole board describing how much they've suffered through the years. And to make it worse, in 1997, a local art gallery planned on showing a collection of paintings that Wayne had done in prison. He often painted landscapes and made pencil drawings of Kate Moss. Family and friends picketed outside the gallery, holding signs that said, Hang Henley not his art. 
but it didn't stop anyone inside the gallery. 21 of his 23 paintings sold almost instantly. As the years passed, Wayne gave several interviews while incarcerated. Once he said, quote, I know people will always think that I'm evil, but I know it's not true. I know I'm not useless. I know I've become someone my mom would be proud of. Do you realize I hadn't even gotten my driver's license? And there I was out committing murders with Dean, just because I wanted to please him. But the victims and the victims' families struggled with either of the men being set free. Tim Curley, the boy who was being assaulted when Wayne shot and killed Dean Coral, had an interview with a local Houston TV station in 2008. He opened up about the night and said, I have two choices, either accept it and move on, or kill myself. After the interview, his life spiraled out of control. He began drinking heavily and suffered severely from PTSD, and he later died in South Africa in 2009. As for the victims' families, they struggled to clean out their sons' rooms for years. Many kept small trinkets, awards, and report cards to remember their sons, and many of the parents remained trapped in time for decades. Their wounds never healed. Today, many of the parents are either in nursing homes or have passed away. The mother of Frank Aguirre, Josephine, suffered from Alzheimer's, and her daughter Deborah thought it was a blessing in disguise. She hoped her mother had forgotten the trauma they had all gone through back in the 1970s, but whenever she mentioned her son's name, she would begin to weep. Homer Garcia's parents would still visit their son's grave every Sunday nearly four decades later, and his headstone read, The day they took you, part of us went with you. As for Dorothy Hillegeist, she died at the age of 88 in her home in the same neighborhood in Houston. At her funeral, the priest said that she had done a lot of good in her life, but in the end, she was a woman of sorrows. David Brooks later assisted a Harris County Institute of Forensic Sciences employee, Sharon Derrick, and together they identified one more of the missing boys that wasn't an official victim. The boy's mother had died, but the boy's sisters were informed of his death. Since then, Sharon became much more invested in identifying more victims, and the case seemed to continue on decades after the fact. One of the last remaining women in the Heights neighborhood that lost a son to Dean was Mary Scott, the mother of Mark Scott. Mark was also a friend of Wayne's, who lured him to Dean. But Mark's body was originally identified by Wayne after it was uncovered at High Island Beach. In 1994, the medical examiner's office gave her the set of remains they believed were Mark's. Mary had the bones cremated, but she held on to one just in case. That single bone came in handy when Sharon came around. Mary always had a suspicion that the bones weren't truly her son's, and she thought the medical examiner's office had just given her these remains to give her peace of mind. After running DNA tests on the bone, Sharon sadly discovered that the remains were not Mark's. They were the remains of Stephen Sickman, a 17-year-old boy who was last seen walking down West 34th Street shortly after midnight on July 20th, 1972. Sharon later described this discovery as one of the saddest moments of her career. And later when Hurricane Ike moved through Texas in 2008, it destroyed the section of High Island Beach where many believe more bodies were buried. Now Mark's remains are most likely somewhere out in the ocean. And nobody knows how many more unidentified remains are now lost at sea. All Mary wanted was to give her son a proper burial, but now that was impossible. As for David Brooks, when he was 65 years old in 2020, he was hospitalized in Livingston. He tested positive for COVID-19 and died on May 28th. He served 45 years in prison. The mother and father of James Dramala, James and Elaine, were the last surviving parents of all of Coral's known victims by 2020. And David's death meant they no longer have to go to his agonizing parole hearings. 
Each one of these hearings made them relive their son's death over and over for more than 40 years. But even then, they still have to go to Wayne's hearings since he's applied for parole 20 times since his sentencing. How would you describe yourself? Quiet, friendly, I work hard. I'm really, I'm really not different than anybody else. If a junkie can quit being a junkie, why can't I quit being what I was? When I got involved with Dean Coyle, it was, uh, it was like going through the looking glass. You know, nothing was real, nothing was right. I was living in a madman's world. Were you a madman? No. You were a sane man in a madman's world? Mm-hmm. Uh, I was a boy in a madman's world. It was a, a weird mesh of conflicting things because I was scared of him and I, 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 uh, I thought he was sick. But at the same time, I didn't want to displease him. I wanted to please him. I was, I wanted him, you know, to be proud of me. Instead of picked to be killed, I was picked to be a handyman. I'm not. You're not a serial I'm killer? I'm not a serial killer. Without call, it wasn't a crime. On my own, there would have been no crime. It's not me. I'm passive. So when COVID-19 hit, many prison conditions became a lot more dangerous, especially for prisoners who had autoimmune diseases or or anything along those lines. Um, a lot of people, a lot of prisoners, unfortunately, tried to take advantage of that. But Texas officials rarely grant compassionate release even today, even when COVID-19 hit. Most people who are terminally ill or permanently disabled are eligible for what's called medically recommended intensive supervision. But Wayne's medical condition has never been disclosed for obvious reasons, and he's still in prison to this day, so he didn't get released. So it's likely not one of those things then. Right. James's sister, Michelle, said in an email, quote, He does not deserve to have any compassion for any illness as my brother was not even treated with basic humanity. He should stay where he is until he dies. No one really knows when Dean Kroll truly became a monster. For many, he seemed like a sweet, innocent man. I mean, he was the candy man after all. And there was no incident in his childhood that could be pinpointed for his transformation into a sexual predator filled with bloodlust. And even though he's one of the United States' worst serial killers, his story has faded into the background somehow. Five books have been written about his atrocities, but not many stayed on the shelves for long. Even Truman Capote planned on writing about Dean for a sequel to In Cold Blood. But after being hospitalized for a pulmonary condition, he called off the project. Some think this case didn't get the attention it deserved because Dean Kroll never gave an interview as he was never captured alive like many other serial killers. In the 1970s, there are plenty of other serial killers who lived to tell their stories. So Dean's crimes have mostly been forgotten. Today, the Heights neighborhood has changed completely and there are no plaques or memorials for all the boys who were killed. And some even believe that Dean Kroll and his trio are only an urban legend. Which, how does that make any sense? That's crazy to me. This guy is one of the most ruthless, evil men to ever exist. And yet it's like he didn't exist. Yeah, if the media doesn't cover it, you know. I think it's 100% fitting that both David and Wayne got the sentences that they got, Same. honestly. I agree. I don't think, I get it, you were, you were teenagers, 
but I don't think in these circumstances that that really helps you out too much. Yeah, I know a big argument for teenagers is that their brains haven't developed to full capacity. So it's like, oh, if you commit a crime back then, but it's not like they got the death penalty, you know, right, it's right. Just like prison the rest of your life. I think they actively chose to do what they did regardless of them being young. I think you can still have a, I mean, he was taking money. He was taking money. He was full well knowing what he was doing. I mean, you're old enough at that age. It's not like they were like eight or nine or 10 or 11. I mean, they were in their late teens when they started doing this with Dean. And obviously the biggest thing is like, imagine if they did get released, you know what I mean? Like the fact that this is the form, this is really the form of justice that the families are getting is through the incarceration of, of David and, and Wayne. I mean, Dean, he exited the the scene and that was it. And I mean, they wouldn't even have known about all this if they hadn't have arrested Wayne right? Yeah. and, and David. So, and for that, and he confessed to the whole thing too. It's like you confess to the whole thing. I mean, I guess at the time, maybe you thought that was going to help him in the end, but I mean, you basically confessed and told everything that happened. So because we have as much detail as we do have, it's like you were there participating like the whole time, man. Yeah, both exactly. of them were, were guilty of luring victims. I mean, I don't think I think that is absolutely a, a accomplice to murder when you were luring the victim to the killer. It's, yeah, that's terrible. And like, imagine you did like the fact that Wayne's saying that I'm not a killer. I never killed anybody. It's like, dude, yes, you did. Yeah. So it's like it's just clear he, that they're. He even admitted to his friends, like, I've shot four to five people. And now, and now years later, it's like, oh, I never killed him. It's like, dude, nobody's going to buy that. Like, you are right where you belong. Yeah. And the poor family, the, the Draymala family who they've, they've had to imagine having to give your victim statements for 20 times. He's trying to go up for parole. And each time you have to be like this again, we have to do this again. It's evil, man. Yeah. Uh, I just can't believe the the police. They're the God ones who almighty. committed the biggest crime you know here what, and they got Josh, off the hook. I can believe that this is, this is like status quo, honestly. Shove it down and don't worry about it. Brush yeah. it under the rug. Lift the rug up and just brush it. Oh, you know, not a problem. Yeah, it's all good here. Don't look Let's this way. Let's blame the gays. Blame the gays. Yeah, I can't believe that's, that. That's absurd to the, me. The police chief saying, one, it's the family's fault for not looking after their sons and two yeah let's go raid all the gay bars in town that's mind-blowing that's just sick it's truly sick it's like oh let's just pretend like we didn't do anything wrong and instead let's make it and and that's i mean then this shit still continues today right it's like you know with the whole thing with uh, you know drag queens and all that kind of stuff grooming kids and this it's like it's always the it's always an excuse right it's like let's Let's create this evil that never existed in the first place and let's get the media all riled up about it and make a huge deal out of something that is, there's nothing there. But because of the perception that the public has or certain people in the public have about this subject, they're able to, it's like they're able to create this smoke screen for the real issue there. Yeah. And it's like, what about the fucking police? And I, and I know the victims' families are, I have got to be, I mean, so angry that the police did not take this seriously and did not stop the carnage so much earlier. Because imagine if they had jumped on this after the first, second, third, fifth boy disappeared. Yeah. 
and actually started investigating and be like, hmm, there's a weird trend going on in our community here in the Heights. Where are all these young boys going? Are they all running away to to some island together? Like there's obvious signs and they just ignored it. Yeah. I mean, they were straight up. Imagine being the officer who went to the boat shed after someone had already said like, hey, we think we saw a guy burying dead bodies. And you go there and you putz around. You're like, nah. And then he called it a hoax. (sighs) Wow. I bet that guy, you know, and one of the police officers actually ended up killing himself. Right. Yeah. So it's like. Ah, that these these cases just completely destroy me because it's like it's it was preventable to some extent had they done their damn jobs and actually investigated this and actually looked at what was going on even a little bit and listened to the parents and that's what makes me so mad and you see this across all missing persons cases even up to this day is that police don't take it seriously they just don't And even if you go up to them and you're like, as a parent, I know my child would not run away. They don't care. They don't care. They don't take that into consideration. They're like, well, maybe they did. So in that case, we're not going to do anything about it until you bring us more evidence. And it's like, why not look into it? And then if you find out he's a runaway, great. You did it. Either way, you're doing a good thing for the family by either finding your runaway kid or discovering the much darker picture there and that's they were abducted and murdered yeah and then they could have jumped on this solved this got this could have gotten dean put away so much earlier and saved so many lives and yet they sat back and did absolutely nothing and in the end who fucking knows how many poor kids died as a result of of their lack of of doing their job i mean and then they were stopping the excavations they said no no more for yeah. what reason? No, that's that, crazy. At the very least, you should be trying to track down every single possible lead, dig up every possible site because there is most likely, and, and I know even most recently they were um, digging in, in Dean's backyard, you know, they're yeah, still yeah. thinking that there was, um, and they didn't find anything, but mm-hmm. it's like, even in the last year or two, luckily they are starting to, you know, dig a little bit more and continue to look for potential places but like my my guess is that we will continue to find victims remains related to dean coral yeah this guy was an absolute monster i mean it's just mind-blowing to me that it just kind of faded into the background i mean everybody knows about john wayne gacy could the killer clown it's like the media only hypes up the ones that have something to it right yeah yeah it's like it's like a it's like a circus show or something like yeah it's uh, like what's gonna get clicks what's gonna get sell newspapers and mm -hmm. it's the killer clown or the son of sam case you're talking about satanic ritual killings and things like that or you got ted bundy the co-ed killer you know what i mean so it's like that's what the media tends to focus on yeah i mean what's what's crazy to me is like i i just came across an article in redmond washington the headlines like a podcaster and his wife were murdered in their home and they put that as the title but then you dig into it a little more and you're like that's not even like really like it was a stalker that stalked this couple but it was a a thing that had been going on for a long time and wasn't necessarily related to them being a podcaster because of course for me i'm like holy shit what is this you know as a podcaster i'm like i need to see what this is about it's like but the media that's what they do is they they look for any of those clickbait yeah elements and then they use that to to their advantage to try to 
build and, their audience. And that's though. like John Wayne Gacy, the clown killer. You know, he didn't even, people have this misconception that he was walking around like a clown. Right. And, and he did his murders in a clown costume. No, like, like he was doing his clown thing was way separate from his murders. And people were even saying that when he was in his clown costume, that's when he was like normal and nice, normal. But right. You know, but then like, they created him into this evil it type clown that yeah. was murderous clown and it's like that's just not not accurate and yeah it's it's really sad that uh, the, these these cases are handled the way that they are i mean it's just i just can't even even understand the grief and the pain and the anger that any of these victims families or loved ones must feel especially i mean just knowing that your child your son was murdered in this way is just got i can't even fathom yeah what that must feel like and how you how do you even deal with that knowing that they they were tortured and it's just it's it's beyond anything i can even possibly comprehend yeah the probably the roughest part of this case for me was when it was one of the victim's sisters kind of saw her mother's alzheimer's as a kind of a double-edged sword she's like this is a horrific disease that for someone to go through but maybe she can forget about the horrific trauma that we she went through but then she would say like hey do you remember frank and she would start crying even even that degenerative disease still wasn't yeah it was just stuck deep in there yeah i mean the level of trauma that this is is just on a whole nother level that many of us can never even will never experience in our lives and the ptsd from from these things happening and the parole hearings and hearing the gruesome details of how their loved ones were killed over and over and over again. I mean, it's just, it's, 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 I can't even imagine. But with that being said, the only proper way to end such a horrific episode is with uh, a tribute to the victims here, the, the innocent boys that were killed at the hands of, of Dean Coral. And, and so we're going to go ahead and, wrap today's episode there and leave you with at least all the victims and their names that we know of and some that we don't but that is it for us today we'll see you next week